rack there. It's page 292, uh, page 292. I encourage you, if you don't have a copy of the Bible yourself, that you take that and read it. We'd love for you to keep it. Uh, 2 Kings 8, we'll read just the first two verses here. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. We'll pause there for a moment to say that this story is rather odd. And I don't really mean the story itself, but the fact that we come to it here. To just kind of situate us for a moment in what we've been walking through, 2 Kings 6, 7, and 8 are about Israel's wars with Syria. So we've got raids, we've got conversations being queen kings and their messengers, we've got full-scale invasion, we've got a siege of Samaria. So this has been going on for some time, and then we come back to the Shunammite woman who we met several chapters before. And it's odd because this story doesn't happen here. This isn't a chronological story. We know that from verse 1 because it tells us that Elisha had said to the Shunammite. So this is a look back at something that happened in the past. It's not happening now in the middle of this war. Why then does God take the time to tell this story here? It's not because of the chronology. It's not because it has anything to do with these wars. There must be some other reason. Well, put a bookmark there because we're going to come back to that in a number of minutes now. But first, we're going to understand the story itself. And the first thing we see here in these two verses is restoration remembered. The story takes place in the context of an ongoing famine, a result of judgment from the Lord. The end of verse 1 highlights this. The Lord has called for a famine, and it will come on the land for seven years. So seven years of little or no crop production. This creates a serious crisis, not just for the nation as a whole, but also for specific individuals. And the Shunammite woman is one of these individuals. Now, unlike many Israelites in this era, she's faithful. She not only is a follower of Yahweh, the true God, but she's provided for his prophet. She's someone who doesn't deserve judgment, and yet she's caught in the famine like everyone around her. However, she does have one significant advantage. She's personal friends with Elisha. And so with this, she gets a warning. She travels to be with the Philistines for seven years. I mean, this is a miracle. She's delivered from starvation. No doubt, many people in Israel died during these seven years. But I couldn't help but think that the mercy of this miracle is a hard mercy. Seven years? Seven years in a foreign land? A land not ex exactly known for being close friends with Israelites, the Philistines. Seven years of trial. Seven years of living out of an ancient Near Eastern suitcase. Seven years of turmoil. And this is God's mercy. Well, where does the trial come from? Verse 1 is pretty clear. The Lord has called for a famine. The people's sin brings judgment, but God is the judge. They need to be saved from the Lord. The judgment is from him. Many Christians' favorite hymn is, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, morning by morning, new mercies I see. Where does that text come from? 
Lamentations chapter 3, verses 23, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What glorious, encouraging truth. But what is the name of that book? Lamentations. To lament is to express grief or sorrow in response to hardship. That beautiful truth that brings us such joy is an expression of sorrow. So where does the ability to lament, to rejoice in difficulty come from? Well, Lamentations 3 continues. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see, joyful perseverance in trials comes to those who hope in the Lord. The Lord is my portion. If everything else is taken away and you have the Lord, he will be enough. Your spouse dies. The Lord is my portion. Just three members of your Sunday school class surviving. The Lord is my portion. You pray for children and can't have them. The Lord is your portion. You want to be married, but you're not. The Lord will be enough. The end of verse 2 tells us that this woman did according to the word of the man of God. She sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. So she travels south and east here and spends seven years in a foreign land, a land of enemies. Well, how does this woman endure with faith? By remembering the past faithfulness of God. And verse 1 introduces us to a key theme in this passage, restoration. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart. So the prophet who raised her son now tells her to arise. Well, let's pick up reading in verse 3 where we'll see restoration renewed. 2 Kings 8 verse 3, so the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here's the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. So the woman returns to Israel, but she's been gone for seven years. Apparently, during this time, other people have moved in on her property. So she goes to the king, verse 3 tells us, to appeal to him for her house and land. And it just happens to be that the king is having a conversation with someone we've met before. Now, we've met Gehazi twice before this. Once in 2 Kings 4, actually, with this Shunammite woman. Uh, You remember her son was dying, and Gehazi was the messenger who ran before Elisha to check on her son. 
And then in 2 Kings chapter 5, we met Gehazi again in the story with Naaman. And at the end of that story, Gehazi steals what's not rightfully his and lies about it, and he's cursed with leprosy. Not exactly a good look for the servant. Well, this is the third and final time we'll hear from Gehazi. And this time, it's a look back in time. It's between those two stories. So 2 Kings 8 situates between 2 Kings 4 and 5. He's not a leper yet. He's sitting in the king's court. And the king asks Gehazi, well, why don't you tell me some good Elisha stories? Well, today he tells a particular story, and it's one he knows well. He was there to see it. In fact, he was directly involved. He's the initial contact in 2 Kings 4, both with the mother and child. First, the mother comes to him for help, and secondly, Elisha sends him to see the child. But of course, when he gets back there, the child is dead. Now, 2 Kings 4 tells us that when Elisha raises the child, no one else is in the room. It's just Elisha and the kid. But Gehazi saw the dead child, and he saw the resurrected child. He saw the before and the after. And coincidentally, as he's telling this very story, in walks this woman with her son. So, verse 6, he says, My Lord, here's the woman, and here's the son whom Elisha raised. Now, there's a hidden irony in this story as well. And I'd like you to see it. So if you have your Bible, flip back just a couple of pages to 2 Kings chapter 4. Look at 2 Kings 4 and verse 12. Because there's something interesting going on here. You remember, this woman has been so good to Elisha. She's built a room for him on her housetop. She's provided for him, cared for him. And Elisha says, is there anything that we can do for her? And so verse 12, 2 Kings 4 verse 12, Elisha said to Gehazi his servant, call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, he said, and he said to him, Say now to her, so you've taken all this trouble for us. What's to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I will dwell among my own people. So, Elisha asks her, Do you need anyone to speak on your behalf to the king? And she doesn't need anything. But now, 2 Kings 8, she does need something. And Elisha's servant just, you know, happens to be there telling the king this story about this woman and this boy at this time. Crazy coincidence, right? I don't think so. The God who restored her son now ensures the restoration of her land. I mean, track this. Verse 1, the woman whose son, so we're back in 2 Kings 8 now. The woman whose son Elisha had restored to life. Then verse 5, Elisha restored the dead to life. Verse 5, the woman whose son he had restored to life. And again, verse 5, her son whom Elisha restored to life. He's not just being repetitious for the sake of being repetitious. Each of these words, restore, literally means to revive or to give life. And then in verse 6, our English translation again uses the word restore, but it's a different word. It just means to return, give her back her land. The God who restored the woman's son to life now restores her land. As a number of you know, uh, several weeks ago, our rear tire passenger side in our van shredded, and when it did, it ripped kind of the rear quarter panel off our van. Well, supply chain issues being what, it, what they are, thankfully the van is drivable, but we're just waiting on parts. So now we've got this very nice hole sitting in the rear corner of our vehicle until the parts come in. So Fender Mender will call us and let us know when those parts are ready. But imagine with me this morning that, you know, you're a service rep at Fender Mender and you're getting 
annoyed that it's taking so long to get these parts in. And you think, well, we've got a 1985 Chevy 1500 sitting out back. We'll take the bumper off of that thing and we'll stick it on the rear of their, their minivan. And so they say, hey, we've got your parts come in. And so we drop it off. Three or four days later, they call us back. We pick it up and I show up and there's this old dinged up bumper on the back of our van. Well, what would I say? That ain't right. Look, th this is not what we pay you to do. We don't pay you to do this with some sort of half measure. Like when I get it back, I want it to look like the old bumper. I want it to look better than the old bumper. I want it to look like new. And God isn't chintzy in how he restores things to his children. It's, it's not like she has to go back and she's digging out and she's kind of patchworking this together, digging out from this hole for seven years. The king commands that she gets seven years of produce equal to what the harvest would have been had she been there. Like, she's been somewhere else living, surviving. She shows back up and she gets everything that would have been hers had she been there. She left, came back, and gets it all. We see the same thing in the book of Job. Job loses everything. His herds, his children, his wealth, his houses. And he says in Job 121, the Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then at the end of the book, Job 42.10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So Job could say at the end, the Lord took away and the Lord has given. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God isn't chintzy in how he cares for his children. This story is a look back in time to see this restoration process. And our second story takes us now back to the present day wars with Syria, where recovery is desired. Let's pick up now in verse 7. We're going to read down through verse 14. 2 Kings 8, 7. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camels' loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to say to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go. Say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. So Elisha lives in Israel, but he travels far north and west now up to Damascus. 
Years ago, David had put an Israelite outpost in Damascus, 2 Samuel chapter 8. But those days are long gone. Damascus, capital of the Syrian Empire, is now a major enemy of Israel and sending armies to invade Israel. Ben-Hadad, the king, is by this time an old man. He's ruled Syria for almost 40 years. And these 40 years have not been kind years to Israel, full of raids and wars. Now Ben-Hadad has fallen ill, he's old, and he hopes to live longer. So he sends one of his men to ask the prophet if he'll recover. And verse 9 tells us Hazael goes with 40 camel loads of stuff. Or maybe it's a bribe to get a positive word. Or maybe it's sort of a, a present, hoping that he'll be healed, much like Elisha had healed his general, Naaman. So at the end of verse 9, when Hazael came and stood before him, he said, your son, the king, has sent me to say, shall, you, shall I recover from the sickness? And there is a little bit of a troubling point here in this passage. It's really one of the great conflicts. God is not a man that he should lie. And yet, Elisha appears to tell Hazael to lie. Verse 10, Elisha said to him, go say to him, you will recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will so, Elisha doesn't exactly lie himself, but he seems to tell Hazael to lie. So, is God endorsing lying? Well, we know that's not the case because one of the Ten Commandments tells us not to. So, what's going on here? Well, first, there are various levels of geopolitical authority going on. And while it's clear from Scripture that you cannot lie to your neighbor. So someone you're in a close or personal or responsible relationship to. You can't lie, bear false witness to that person. It's also clear from scripture that spying and subterfuge are a legitimate part of warfare. It's how you deal with your enemies. Uh, we see this in the story of Moses and the Exodus. You remember what the Hebrew women did? They hid the babies and were lying about whose babies they were. Or Rahab, when she hid the spies in the wall at Jericho. Or the Israelite ambush or the people of Ai. Or you get to the New Testament and people letting down Paul over a basket in a wall to hide him from those who are coming after him. There are other stories like this throughout scripture. So there's a difference between peaceful, interdependent, neighbor-like relationships and people who are coming for your head. So, kids, if your mom asks you this week, where your brother or sister is, you should tell her. That's the way that works. But if it's 1943 and you're living in Poland and a Nazi soldier shows up at your door and you're a Jewish child and they say, where are your brothers and sisters? You should not tell them. Because your responsibility then is to protection and the preservation of life. So we can't lie to the Lord. We can't lie to our neighbor. But clearly, nation-states should strategize against their enemies. And besides this, it doesn't actually appear to me that there's any lying here except for Hazael. So Elisha makes two predictions. One is for the illness itself. And apparently, it's not that serious of an illness. If the illness were to follow its natural course of events, maybe it's a bad cold, the flu, I don't know, then Ben-Hadad would certainly recover. And then his second prediction is for 
events beyond the illness. So will this illness kill me? The answer is no, you would recover from this illness. But however, there are events beyond this illness, the end of verse 10, that will mean that he will certainly die. He won't die of the illness, he will die through other means, as we shall see. And then there's this awkward moment, you can almost picture it. Elisha's just staring at Hazael and staring till Hazael's embarrassed. And then he just breaks down weeping. Much as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. Why? Because he grieves over what he sees Hazael will do to his people. I know the evil that you will do. You will set on fire their fortresses, kill their young men, dash in pieces their little ones, rip open their pregnant women. What Elisha is seeing is the fulfillment of something that happened back in 1 Kings 19. Do you remember what happened after Elijah battled the prophets at Mount Carmel? Remember he had this great victory, boom, fire from heaven. And then what does he do? He runs and he hides from Jezebel. And he's pouting, he's like, Lord, I, just I, I'm left alone. And then the Lord appears to him, speaks to him in a cave. Do you remember this? He speaks to him in a quiet whisper, what the King James calls a still, small voice. And then after this scene with the Lord, he tells Elijah to leave there and go and do three things. To anoint three people. To anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. To anoint his successor, Elisha, to be prophet for Israel. And to anoint a foreign king. Do you remember who that king was? It was Hazael. Elijah anointed Hazael. Now the Lord shows the same thing to Elisha. He's going to be the next king. So Elijah's gone to Damascus. He's already anointed him. And now Elisha is there confirming what God has already said will be happening. The Lord has shown me, verse 13, that you are to be king over Syria. So Hazael leaves. And he carries, like a good servant, the message back to to Ben-Hadad, verse 14. Ben-Hadad says to him, what did Elisha say? And he said, he told me you would recover. All good. Well, this brings us to verse 15, where recovery is denied. Let's pick up now in verse 15. But the next day, Hazael took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. So Ben-Hadad doesn't recover. Not because of the illness, but because of his murderous subordinate. Elijah had anointed Hazael king, and here we are years later, and in verse 15, Hazael becomes king. Ben-Hadad wasn't an innocent man. He's killed countless Israelites, so he must die. Restoration to health is denied to him. So, do you remember our question? Why this story? Why now? Why here? There's an important linguistic link in this passage that isn't immediately obvious to us. And we haven't made this link until now. You remember the word that appeared in verse 1 and three times in verse 5? What word was that? Restore. To revive. That same Hebrew word, chayah, to live, to revive, appears four more times in verses 7 through 15. Verse 8, shall I Recover, shall I, shall I revive? Verse 9, shall I recover? Verse 10, you shall certainly recover. Verse 14, you would certainly recover. These words, recover and restore, are the same Hebrew word. The sun revives, but the king does not. 
the Shunammite woman and her son don't randomly appear here. They appear here because the Lord is telling us two mirror image stories with reverse outcomes. One faithful follower of Yahweh receives revival, salvation. The other, a pagan murderous king, receives damnation, judgment. Why didn't the king of Syria revive? Because God judged him for his sin. Why did the boy revive? Because God rescued him from death. Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man in Lazarus. Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime, in your lifetime, you received your good things. In Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from you to us. They said, I beg you, my father, send him then to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. He said to them, said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, if you don't listen to God's word here, you receive judgment We took a poll this morning and said, who wants judgment? Who wants salvation? I think we'd get pretty overwhelming results. We all want salvation. We all want the good things. We all want this. We, we all want what Lazarus got in the end. But if you take 2 Kings 8 and, and Luke 16 together, you can see that having the good life here can blind us to our true need. I mean, we live in a world where you can measure almost everything. And I don't know that we can measure this, but I would venture to say that over the last six weeks, there have been more prayers uttered to some God in Ukraine than in the six weeks before that. Maybe many multiple times. Why? Because they have a need. They need someone to intervene, someone bigger and greater. But we sit here in a destination city, on the coast of the most prosperous nation in the world, and it's easy to feel like we don't need anything. 
but death is the great equalizer. Death comes for everybody. We've got multiple kings in this passage. One is King Jehoram. Now we'll find out later what happens to him, but he saw Elisha's work. He heard the word of the Lord, and in this one instance, he seems to respond positively to Elisha's ministry. But it's one thing to see God at work, to observe it, be glad it's happening, and it's another thing to embrace God by faith. To observe and to receive are two different things. It's another to place saving faith in the only true Redeemer. And the testimony of God's word and of Jesus Christ himself is that if you don't listen to this word, you won't be convinced even if someone hypothetically could rise from the dead, and he has. And yet people today reject this same God. Even if Jesus today appeared, if you won't be convinced by his word, the word of God says you won't be convinced by him. And yet turning to him is your only hope. Oh, friend, if you're here, don't imagine, because your belly is full and life is good, that you don't need. There is coming the day, the day the rich man met, and he met God as judge. And yet God's word tells us we can all meet God as our redeemer, as our savior, as our father, as our friend. But we meet God that way through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you turn from your sin? Would you embrace this God who loved you and sent his son for you? Elisha hovers over this entire story, but he's noticeably absent from the two biggest events. So he's not there in the throne room when Gehazi is telling the story. And he's not there when King Ben-Hadad dies. 2 Kings chapter 8 is the first time in a number of chapters since 1 Kings 3... that a woman successfully appeals to the king for justice. And it's Elisha, an absent redeemer, who ensures that she's cared for. John Milton's 1667 poem, Paradise Lost. Probably none of you have read it. Maybe one person here has. I don't know. Uh, Apparently Dale Garza has. 10,000 lines long. It takes up 12 volumes. It's considered his masterpiece. It's his story of the story of the fall, how paradise was lost. Four years later, 1671, he wrote a sequel, Paradise Regained. Apparently, this took less time, only 2,000 lines and four volumes. And in this story, he tells the story of Jesus' temptation and how Jesus met Satan, the great enemy, and won victory. We know that victory was ultimately vindicated at the cross and at the resurrection. And yet today, like Elisha, the one who guarantees our victory isn't present with us. But his ministry is spreading and growing through the one who inhabits his people as Elisha never could. The Spirit of God lives in us and among us. In John 14, Jesus promised that when he left the earth, he would send someone. He wouldn't leave us as orphans. He would send someone to help us, and God would give us another helper to be with us forever, even the spirit of truth. He dwells with you and will be in you. A few months ago, I uh, ran home in the middle of the day. I was just going to run in and and grab something real quick. Uh, No one home. I walk in, and I go to uh, open the door to our garage, and and the door won't open. Well, that's weird. I jig a little while, and it still won't open. 
So I'm like, okay. So uh, I figure out, well, I'll have to take this door off and figure out what's going on. So the only problem is I'm trying to get into my garage. All of the tools are just on the other side of this door. <coughs> Unfortunately, to get to those tools, I have to walk outside and then in through the garage door, you know, that goes up and down. I'm like, I just need a screwdriver. I'll, I'll just run around there, grab it, run back, and I'm trying to zip the, the knob off, and I realize, like, oh, no, this thing won't move at all. So then I'm like, okay, so go back, and I grab a flat screwdriver and a, and a hammer, and I, and I come back, and then I realize, oh, this screwdriver, like, this is really tight. This screwdriver isn't quite narrow enough to get these hinges off, so back. And by this time, I'm like, okay, fine. And I'm, like, just dragging all the tools, you know, back in, boom. Well, imagine, and some of you do work much more difficult than that for a living. Imagine that you had someone there and you're like, I don't know, it'd be really nice if I had a screwdriver right, boom, screwdriver. I could use a hammer. And before you even thought of it, it was there waiting for you. Well, Romans 8.26 tells us the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. I mean, do you remember the woman in cha chapter 4? She's, she's like the person who goes home and like finds like the doorknob isn't working. But that doesn't happen until chapter 8. She needs the hammer and screwdriver. And the prophet is there and says, hey, do you need a screwdriver? And she's like, no, I'm good. I don't need anyone to speak to the king. And then it's years later... And she does need someone to speak to the king. And she shows up, and she's been gone for seven years out of country. And she shows up, and Elisha's handing her the screwdriver when she walks into the king's court. Before it ever occurs to her that there could be a possible need, God has already answered the prayer, met the need. We pray for a job. We get the job. But then, but then the job becomes our greatest source of stress. So now we pray for relief from the very thing we pray for. We don't know what to pray for as we are. So we go to the king's court, and he knows. And what do we find when we get there? The Spirit himself interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. The king has already made provision for what we need before we knew we needed it. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. Deuteronomy 31, Jesus is passing the mantle, or uh, Moses is passing the mantle of leadership to Joshua. And he tells the people in Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread in them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Brothers and sisters, God is with you. You don't need to be afraid. Amen. But then I love this because then he talks to Joshua. So that's what he says to the people, to, to the nation. This closing address. And then he talks with the new leader, Joshua. And he goes a step further, Deuteronomy 31, 8. So he tells the people, the Lord is with you. And he tells Joshua, the Lord goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you, forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord is with you. The Lord goes before you. Your Father knows what you need Amen. 
before you ask. There are a lot of things we need in life. Food, shelter, drink, breath. You know what you don't ever need to do? Worry. You don't ever need to worry. God knows what we need. He goes before us even when we don't know what we need. It's surprising here that the king who hates Elisha asks Elisha's servant to tell him good stories about Elisha. It's surprising that it's Gehazi giving the good report. It's surprising that this woman who doesn't need anything from the king shows up to ask the king for something really big. But it's not at all surprising that the God who goes before us had already made provision for her need before she even knew about it. We can rely on the goodness, the sufficiency, the power and love of God to care for us. Has he not said, I will never leave you or forsake you? And he never, never will. Let's take a moment now and respond to the word of God in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then we'll close this time in prayer. God, I thank you that we can come before you today with much greater confidence than that woman walked into the king's courtroom. God, that we can know the king of the universe has died for our sins, shed his blood so that we might confidently come into your presence. And that when we come, we come not by ourselves, but with, with a helper with us, with your spirit, who even when we don't know what to ask, he asks for us. And that you, our Father, you, you know what we need before we ask. Lord, help us be encouraged by this. To know that the God of the universe has made provision for us before we even knew what we needed. You're so good and so gracious. God, we praise you. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. And you have given us Jesus how will you not also with him freely give us all things? So we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.